Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we are talking about Secretary with author Anna Fitzpatrick. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. We'll soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. If you're not familiar with Secretary, and I'm reading straight from Wikipedia, please don't hold it against me, but let's be concise here. Secretary is a 2002 American erotic black comedy romantic drama film directed by Steven Shainberg and written by Aaron Cressida Wilson. It's based on the short story Secretary by Mary Gateskill. We talk a lot about this short story and about Mary Gateskill's response to the movie Secretary in this very conversation. Secretary stars Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader. It explores the intense relationship between a dominant lawyer and his submissive secretary who indulge in various types of BDSM activity, such as erotic spanking and pet play. We talk about uh, that a lot in this episode. So just know that that is coming. We talk about things like self-harm. These are various content warnings. This is a a heavy episode, but it's a romp still as, as we do. And uh, we talk about the dangers of taking movies as manuals of how to be out in the world. And that theme is touched upon a lot in Anna's upcoming book, Good Girl, which I've seen described as uh, Secretary Meets Fleabag. <laughs> so uh, she was the perfect, the perfect person to have on to discuss this, discuss the themes, discuss coming of age after seeing this movie. It was really great having Anna here. So look for Anna's book, Good Girl. Of course, we'll have that linked in the show notes. How are you doing out there, by the way? How's everything going in your life? I hope that things are going uh, the best that they can be. And if they're not, stay strong, my friends. It is, uh, it's an interesting world that we live in. Follow us, Phils. Get yourself a pack of Swedish fish. That, that usually does the trick for me. Did you know that You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with and by your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us via Apple subscriptions. Uh, If you support us in those places, you get bonus episodes in return. We appreciate you. Thank you. We are authors. We are writers. We are journalists. We are photographers. We are musicians. So we appreciate this opportunity to be able to make this show with your support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This month's bonus is going to be about the movie Home for the Holidays. It was a super fun conversation. I really loved talking about it, uh, and I'm excited to share that with you. Uh, That'll be out within the next couple of weeks, so look out for that. It'll be out before Thanksgiving, for sure. You should have that movie before Thanksgiving. You deserve it. We also, in that bonus, talk a lot about how weird Thanksgiving is as an American myth, so you'll get a lot of that, too. And one more thing, a special treat. Today at the end of the episode, we'll be playing Carolyn's new song, Break of Day. Carolyn Kendrick is our producer. Uh, When we started out, she used to uh, make a lot of songs to accompany the episodes, but she's been focused on being a musician and a producer lately. And so the time for doing so has been limited, but... She just put out this new song, which is available on Bandcamp. It's available where songs stream, like the the various streaming services. If you want to support her or any musician, you can buy the song on Bandcamp, even if you're never, ever going to listen to it there, even if you're just going to listen on Spotify or wherever. You can buy 
the song on Bandcamp and that money goes to the artist in a way that uh, the streaming services just don't make possible. So we're so excited to premiere Carolyn's song Break of Day. She has another song coming out soon. I'm sure you'll be able to hear that here as well, but uh, look out for it and we will link to Carolyn's Bandcamp accordingly in the show notes. Thank you for sharing the song with us, Carolyn. It is beautiful. All right, before we get into Secretary, how about a quick note from our sponsor, Inked Gaming. Inked Gaming is a trusted one-stop shop for those who seek premium goods, specifically crafted by gamers for gamers. Inked Gaming's growing collection of goods includes everything from premium playmats to mouse pads, all of which are designed to help you level up your gaming setup. We run this ad. It makes so much sense because so many people who listen to the show have told us that they are gamers. People we've had on the show are gamers. It just makes sense. We are gaming family. Though, strictly out of curiosity, and this is me dipping out of the ad quickly, what game should I play if I were to get sort of further into gaming? My my experience is largely through uh, through D&D early on in Magic, but I know that a lot has happened in gaming since. I'd love to know from you what I should explore by way of this arena. With Inked Gaming, you can put your own personal touch on your custom pieces and prepare to stand out or strike up a conversation with the other gamers at the table. You'll also find a wide range of amazing pre-designed art in Inked Gaming's collection, all from talented independent artists who send in their work from across the globe. So do you have a big game night battle coming up? If you do, this is why you should go to InkedGaming.com, stock up on some fresh supplies for your favorite games. Inked Gaming is both a friend and sponsor of the show that's been in the business of providing premium quality gaming goods since 2011. They have a massive collection of playmats, mouse pads, and more. And of course, if you order using this ad, you can get 10% off waiting for you at Inked Gaming. InkedGaming.com slash you are good. All you have to do is pick and or personalize the gear that you need for your favorite game and use the promo code you are good at checkout or go to inkedgaming.com slash you are good and the discount will automatically apply to your order thank you so much to inked gaming for uh making the show possible all right let's get in the secretary with ashley fitzpatrick hello sarah marshall Hello, Alex Steed. This is the office of E. Edward James. <laughs> very nice, very powerful phone answering skills. Thank you. With my tiny throat. Yeah. <laughs> Have you experienced any worthwhile spankings lately? Oh, I mean, there's never enough good spankings in my life. You know that. But yes, I did recently watch a hit movie that changed culture forever about a shy, sexually inexperienced young woman meeting a powerful business guy when she has wet, stringy hair and (laughs) having a really unimpressive meet cute that leads to him welcoming her very gradually into his frozen heart. And that movie was, of course, Secretary. Uh, It's ideal. And who are we engaging in this wonderful text with? We're talking to Anna Fitzpatrick, who is honestly my favorite possible guest to have on this show where I'm going to have to talk about how I, too, am more turned on by the idea of getting spanked while reading legal writing than I am by the idea of having sex with 
any normal guy. <laughs> Jed or whatever that guy's name is. <laughs> Anna Fitzpatrick. Hello. What brings you here to talk about secretary? Well, I'm a, I'm a longtime fan, first time guest. But yes, I have known Sarah Marshall from around. I think we know each other from the hairpin. The hairpin, the be- the believer we were yeah. both contributing to, uh, just being on Twitter. Being tall, tall women find each other even on the internet inexplicably. I know we, we talk about this here and there. I don't think people fully realize that Sarah is fucking tall. Like Sarah is like a, a, a figure, you know, when she comes in the room. And what is your height? I'm just under six feet and Sarah towers over me. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I love to have a just under and a just over together. I feel like, yeah, I'm, I, 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 I end up out on the town with a lot of ladies just under to my just over. I would say 5'11 and a half in high school because I wanted to sound like demure and petite. That was the patriarchy working. I was just a, just a little 5'11 and a half. That's but yes, I am a writer based in Toronto and freelanced for a bunch of places, including The Hairpin and The Believer. And... I just released my first novel in Canada earlier this year. It is called Good Girl. And I think there will be some relevance to the discussion today. And it's a heartwarming story about a dog who teaches a child to love and then dies or something. Oh, good girl. For Christmas. Get it for Christmas (laughs) for your elderly relatives. When I look at the hashtag on Twitter, because I want to see who's talking about it on Twitter, it's all very horny people talking about you know themselves hashtag good girl and on instagram it's a lot of dog pictures but soon my book will be out in the u.s on january 17th 2023 distributed by ecw i'm getting this in at the top so i don't forget but soon all the hashtags will be well hopefully still a lot of dog pictures but my (laughs) book will be in there i mean also just like horny good girl is great too it's a nice mix god bless them they're my muses And how, just quickly, before we get into Sarah's famous recaps, how does Good Girl thematically, if at all, tie into what's going on in Secretary? Well, the protagonist of Good Girl has seen the movie and discusses it, and she wants her life to be like the movie Secretary. And she tries to read the short story it's based on, the terrifyingly brilliant Marion Gateskill. Um, And she's like, hey, this isn't sexy. I think I'm just going to ignore the story and focus on making my life into the movie, which does not happen. And it's sort of, my, my book is, a lot of stuff is happening in it, but a lot of it is an homage of learning to understand how to read a Marion Gateskill short story published 30 years ago. Oh, I love that. It's yeah. really resonant too, because I can think of at least 10 times in my life where I was like, I want to be like this, but I'm just going to imitate the surface of this and not get into the depth of this. And guess what? It led to issues. God, I'm already being attacked on this show. I've only been going for like five minutes. <laughs> Speaking of you being attacked, could you take us on a little field trip through what Secretary is? I would adore to. Okay, so Secretary is a 2002 film which stars James Spader which is what all lawyers with emotional issues look like. And Maggie Gyllenhaal as our good girl, Lee Holloway, who comes back to live with her family after a suicide attempt, had her in, you know, what seems like a rather Canadian sort of social safety net for somebody (laughs) with self-harm and suicidal ideation. But we're in Florida. Just forget it. We're in Florida. (laughs) 
somehow there were resources for her to receive round the clock mental health care for a while. But she's going back home to be with her mother, Leslie Ann Warren, and her father, Elaine's therapist from Seinfeld. Remember him? I didn't even connect that this is our second week of Leslie Ann Warren. This is great news. We will have done Clue by the time this comes out. And her sister, played by the girl from Crybaby, John Waters. Amy Locaine? Is she, and I hate that this is the way that I remember her, but is Mm -hmm. she the lady that accidentally killed someone with her car? Yeah. Okay, we'll take that out. I just wanted to clarify. She doesn't need to be followed by that her her whole life. Well, but also they released her and then they were like, JK, we're putting you in prison again. And it's like legally unprecedented. It's like the state of New Jersey or whatever (gasps) is making an example out of Amy Locaine for some reason. It's actually really bad. Wow. Free Amy. I did not know that. Maybe we should keep it in so people know about this. I know her as Crybaby and the sister and secretary. I had no idea she had a life off screen. (laughs) So she goes back to live with her, her family, played by a wonderful cast of character actors, goes to typing school, gets some secretarial skills, much like Muriel Heslop before her. She gets her typing diploma. Mm. And then she goes out on the job market and immediately gets a job working for Mr. Gray. I forgot to even say in my comedic opening that the name Gray appears in this, which the marketing for this movie now embraces. Immediately gets a job from him. You're like, oh, this and my Alex, my only commentary to you while watching this movie is that E. Edward Gray is. Is it E. Edward Gray? It is. That's so weird. It is. That Mr. Gray is just is Mr. Darcy and specifically Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy. And this might not be true because my source for this is Bridget Jones's diary. I love that. But I believe it that like, according to that, Colin Firth was like, yes, well, I was told to perform this scene, you know, as if Mr. Darcy has a huge erection. And like whether or not that was an actual note, he does play the role that way. Yeah, and Spader is sweating as if he has the biggest erection that has ever happened through at least three quarters of this movie. He's more erection than man now. (laughs) I've only learned through this show, not through paying attention in real time, that Fifty Shades of Grey was originated as fan fiction about Twilight. Sure was. You might know that because I insisted on telling you about it for at length. (laughs) I'm grateful to have learned it. But the thing that was like just extra on the nose that struck me at the very end of this movie is this guy's name is Edward Gray. Yeah, he's the the daddy of them both. His boring, horrible sons. It's very sad. They're both so boring (laughs) and so terrible. (laughs) So, yes, the, the, the daddy Gray, the best of them all. And like. Well, I'm sure that I will feel the need to like insult Fifty Shades of Grey throughout this episode. It'll come up. But I just want to like (laughs) start by throwing in the words of another Canadian luminary, Dan Olson of the Folding Ideas YouTube channel, who did a very lengthy analysis of the Fifty Shades series and basically concluded that Christian Grey is not interested in dominance. He is a budding serial killer. And I think that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember when the Fifty Shades movie came out, someone, one of my Facebook friends posted like, this is just a a more easily digestible version of Secretary. And which is which is true. But Secretary itself has has gone on uh, its own its own journey. And to that point, like Secretary seems to find 
sex good? Yes, it is. The main difference between Secretary and Fifty Shades is that one of them is hot. Yeah, I noticed that about it. No disrespect to the the lovely actors in Fifty Shades. They've they've got an attractive cast, but it is a sexless movie. I think Dakota Johnson is very good. I think she's like pulling with every fiber of her being to make those movies sexy. I love her. To the extent to which it ever succeeds, I think it's entirely because of her. And that other guy, I wish him well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very diplomatic. He he did some he did some nice yoga yoga poses for the for the camera. <laughs> And that's when and when I am having sexual feelings famously as a woman, I'm like, show me a guy just standing there looking angry. That's what I want. (laughs) And so to sum up what secretary is about, because we're already like carving up the chicken, essentially, she starts working for Mr. Gray. She has also pretty much immediately relapsed into self-harming. He notices this about her and he effectively is like, Let's start, you know, I'm going to start spanking you for your typos and you're not to harm yourself anymore because that's on orders. I'm ordering you. I'm in charge. Okay, great. And now I'm going to spank you. And it's very sexy. And then he starts catching feelings, as the kids no longer say. (laughs) And he backs off and is like, nothing. It's fine. I don't know her. And then... (laughs) Lee almost gets married to the nice normal guy she's been dating who reminds me of the kid from E.T., but I don't think is played by the kid from E.T. I honestly like the the argument for wedding dresses is not the fairy tale wedding moment, but the idea of doing something dramatic and untoward while wearing one, I think, really. And so you she, either have to run through the rain or does she run through the rain in this? She runs through a park. <laughs> she, she runs through some mud. She but. You either have to do that, declaration of, of love to someone you're not getting married to, haunt an old mansion. Mm-hmm. Ride away <laughs> on a bike, like in that chick's video. Yeah, I think that might be it. You have to like destroy it or escape in it or haunt somebody in it. But So she makes great use of her wedding dress by coming right up to the cusp of getting married and then bolting and showing back up at Mr. Gray's office where she goes on a hunger and fatigue and endurance strike for love, which is certainly how I was raised to believe is how you earn a relationship. And then it works out. (laughs) Figuratively and sometimes literally. (laughs) There's a a media circus surrounding it. Some reporters decide to, uh, you know, local news coverage of this woman sitting at a desk for three days. It sparks a trend, which I will make a sequel about, the forgotten desk sitter women of Florida. But... But yeah, and then ultimately Mr. Gray relents and everybody gets what they want. And it's a happy ending. I love it. I haven't conveyed really that I find this movie extremely hot and I find this movie extremely hot. Yes. (laughs) Before we kick off, I just want to say a couple of quick things. Mm -hmm. One is, and Sarah, I, I said as much to you not long ago via text, but I was just talking with a friend and listener of the show, Eve Lindley, who is an actress and a trans actress. And specifically, we were talking about liking things that are not culturally correct to like based on sort of like where from where you stand. And we were talking specifically about like Harmony Colangelo had read an essay on one of our bonuses that she had written about having admiration for Angela from Sleepaway Camp, which is a difficult movie in the trans canon. And so 
the one of the things I want to talk about, because I posted on Twitter, I was like, I wonder how this movie would be received today. And I would say a lot of people had opinions. And here are the opinions that we got. One, there are many of us, including Sarah earlier, who appreciate how frequently this played on regular ass television at like 4 p.m. when we were teenagers. That's one. Two, a lot of people had sexuality like their sexuality formed in one way or another by their relationship with this movie yeah alex yeah (laughs) yes please please let the listener know that i am nodding vigorously and Mm -hmm. very similarly i came at this movie a little bit later but very similarly i was affected by this movie in one way or another three is some folks who have actual like relationships and experience in BDSM and communities find this movie difficult and extremely problematic for some of the ways that it portrays that. And the only reason I'm bringing that up or all of this up as a package is I'm acknowledging I have no real experience in the BDSM community, but I did find this movie a fantasy and a, a place of uh, a horny mm-hmm. formation. I would say me too. And also invite me to your parties, maybe. And Anna, now the floor is yours. Yeah, I'm open. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that I have seen many, many times. And I am critical of it in the way that you can be when you know a piece of media like Inside and Out. And that has been like, I have a, I have a poster of this on my wall. And I have a, I've watched it with partners. And I've also had friends in the various communities that I am in who found it triggering or found it uncomfortable and not in a hot way. And these are people who don't have a problem consuming stuff if they if they kind of know what's coming or know how it's going to be packaged. And it is very interesting that this is a romantic movie that ends with with marriage and a happily ever after. And it is fantasy is such a good way to put it. I'm a defender of the Fifty Shades movies in so much as that I don't like them. I saw the Folding Ideas series and I think they're pretty bad and unsexy, but I understand that, you know, you consume stuff that speaks to different needs. And there there are, I think, a lot of people who discovered a lot of things about themselves through that movie. I would also love to put this all at some point in conversation with Nine and a Half Weeks, which is like similarly a movie that claims to be about sex and isn't at all. I have not seen that, but I have just listened to the You Must Remember This episode on it. So I feel like I could say a lot of smart things that are just regurgitations of uh, Karina Longworth. There you go. We'll take it. I'll take Karina Longworth baby birded it in my mouth. This might be the third recommendation of that series in four weeks from guests. So listen, Do do you want to round out your caveats, though? I'm sorry we've derailed you. I follow a similar journey that the character in my novel does in that with a reminder that it is it is fiction and that they're the character in my book is is not me which is a thing that I found myself explaining once I wrote a novel which I I didn't think I was going to have to this much but here we are that I so I saw this movie when I was 18 or 19 I had seen clips of it before actually my introduction to this movie was in I think 2003 the year after it came out I was watching an episode of Oprah that was had the cast of Mona Lisa Smile on there. Uh, so it was the all-star. Was amazing uh, <laughs> circuitous route to kink. What a time capsule. Julia Stiles, uh, Kirsten Dunst. Both these actresses were well known to me, Julia Roberts. Then they introduced Maggie Gyllenhaal and they like showed a clip from her movie and it was they showed her 
crawling down the hall with with the envelope in her mouth and Oprah was teasing her about this sexy movie and I had never heard of Maggie Gyllenhaal I was like 12 at the time and I was like huh this is (laughs) so there's a there's a lot happening here and my first thought was well, I'm going to go see Mona Lisa Smile, which I did because that movie was accessible to me in a way that <laughs> Secretary was not until my parents gave me full control of the blockbuster card. And that <laughs> happened about seven years later, rented it, watched it at my parents' place on a break home from university or, or college because this is an American show. And they can figure it out. Don't coddle them. <laughs> yeah. Watched it alone at about midnight, watched it again. Watched it a few more times on <laughs> the DVD on my when I moved back. And it is a very hot movie. And I was someone who, what little access to porn I had interested me very little. Mm-hmm. I was not a person, yeah, into porn, which isn't to say that I had no interest in sex, just that that particular, just a, a, lo- a lot of it just didn't do anything for me or it was corny or, or overwrought and no disrespect to all the the wonderful porn performers who are out there who I have since discovered a lot of but with limited access to the world and limited access to ideas of what sex and sexuality could look like you see these people who seem to have it all figured out and yeah I found the the short story collection reddit was like hoping for basically smut and there was a lot of, I feel like Ira Glass, where he introduces an episode where he's like, there is the presence of sex in, in this episode, like just warning to parents. I'm like, there is, there, there is the presence of sex in Mary Gateskill's stories and sex is central to the plot of a lot of them, but in a very different way that I don't think I appreciated when I first read Bad Behavior, which is the story collection this appears in. And I think that there was this idea for me where I was like, oh, this is what kink is. You find someone who is into the same things you are. You don't have to talk about them. You just, you have a vibe. The other person (laughs) picks up on that vibe. The other person looks like James Spader. They cure your self-harm issue in one minute. And Mary Gateskill has, has written about this where I have her essay collection, Somebody with a Little Hammer right here. She has an essay on victims and losers, which is about the experience of of seeing the movie adapted, where she's like, oh, S&M is presented as therapeutic. Like, it makes them better people. It makes them more attractive. Maggie Gyllenhaal starts dressing better. Although she always dressed pretty great to be, I mean, like, yes, absolutely. But also, like, can we just take a moment and admire that, like, blue, almost latex-looking cloak that she wears to her job interview? Are you kidding me? We sure can't. A lot, of, a lot of purple in there. It's amazing. This is not. I'm not going out on a limb or an ed, the edge here, but like the superior Gyllenhaal by a factor of a hundred. I'm worried for who doesn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I think she's a she's a joy to watch. I think this is the second movie I really saw her in after Mona Lisa Smile. James Spader was already on my radar with Pretty in Pink. Don't you think that this character, like, I remember I first saw this movie when I was 17 at like a, in a group setting, which is really odd, but it was like this like summer school thing. So we would like watch movies as a group. And I remember also watching Fight Club that way. And also part of Open Water, possibly, or maybe just the trailer for Open Water. And then that just haunted me for decades. But yeah, I remember what sticks with me and what came back watching this 
to do this episode was how the thing that freaked people out the most and caused actual jeering, which made me fairly uncomfortable, was Maggie Gyllenhaal masturbating. They were like, no, it's too much. It makes sense not in that I agree, but it makes sense in that I could see that that is the thing. What teenagers were like in 2005. It's interesting where the line is in this movie between, because there's a montage after the first time he spanks her where you get to see some of their uh, activities and she's in full Mm -hmm. bondage gear. She's getting spanked, they they do horseplay where it involves a saddle and a carrot in the mouth and hey, someone had to go out and get some hay and put it on the table. Get up early, gotta drive out to the feed <laughs> store and back. Yeah, it's it's funny that the people you watched it with, it was, it was the masturbating, which was like, well, that, well, that's something you don't see every day. It's not like horseplay where you, uh, you know, where, where you get you get your saddle <laughs> in the back. Yeah, and I think it was, be, I assume it was because it was, you know, centered her pleasure Mm -hmm. and also like what I remember about the way girls talked about this when I was a teenage girl at one time was like this really performative like ew like you had to act really grossed out at the idea that other girls did that because you would never do that it's like you're just not supposed to know that you can do that right and the things that she's thinking of when she masturbates in that scene and later are orchids four peas mayonnaise being hugged in a field, yeah. Um, it's like code. <laughs> yeah. The line for uh, for James Spader, I can't call him Mr. Yeah, Gray. I just, he's just James Spader. Yeah, it's the line for him where he's concerned that he crosses a line is when he masturbates on her mm-hmm. and that, and he sees her face after. And that's the moment where he basically fires her and, and thinks he's disgusting and, and whatever. And again, I'm like, huh, like, not the horse stuff. Like again, no judgment on the not no judgment no, on the horse lo- stuff. We love it, horse just, stuff on this show, obviously. But yeah, <laughs> it's it's just interesting where the escalation is. Mm-hmm. Where I, you know, this reminds me of I finally watched X last night, which is a great time mm. if you like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Watch that. But it does one of my favorite things for horror to do, which is like a foot thing. Somebody like steps on a you know something love sharp thing. and like fucks up their foot. Because I actually, and I also, I saw The Evil Dead in a theater in Portland recently. And like that movie is like over the top gory, like to the point that it's comedic for most of it. But I would say the parts of it are like still, you know, not fully in comedy. But the thing, the only thing the audience really significantly responded to was when a character gets a pencil plunged into their ankle. And yeah. every, the crowd like audibly winced. It was great. What's well, the most resonant piece? Yes. <sighs> yeah. And just and the thing of like how foot stuff is so great in horror, I feel like is like this where it's like you can be presented with an extreme thing sexually and it may like be something that you're not comfortable with. But it's all it also can seem like so far away that you're like, oh, whatever, horse stuff. Who does that? People don't really <laughs> do that. Right. But like masturbation, you're like, no. <laughs> yeah. So the, another movie, I think I've already referenced this on the show. I referenced it on our socials, but BJ and Harmony Colangelo, friends of the show from This Ends at Prom, introduced me to the great movie Dinner in America. And this reminds me actually a lot of that, hmm. where, you know, it's it's like Dinner in America is kind of like Badlands meets this meets punk, which I really enjoy. Mm. Punk like the genre or punk like... Yeah, punk okay. like the genre <laughs> and the vibe and the ethos. Yeah, And, you know, it's like if read in sort of direct text 
what happens in Dinner in America, which is ultimately like a, a young woman who is not having a great time at home is ultimately saved by being enveloped by a brash man mm-hmm. is kind of so like the, the disconnect I'm seeing with like what people find a contention in this movie is like if this were read as a BDSM manual, which it should not be. Just find an emotionally unavailable guy and he'll fix all your issues. There's no problem with that plan. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the issue the issue is right like she's she's not in an area to consent. She's just she's going through sort of like a mental health crisis, like there's no conversations or whatever. Yes, absolutely. At the same time, I've been in distress a number of times in my life in a fantasy that is sometimes connected to sex. And just sometimes connected to attention is I want someone to come and envelop me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Alex, this is like, I you know this, but I'm just going to say it for the listeners who don't give me psychological counseling every morning. <laughs> this is the first year of my life when I've been like, what if the plan isn't to be enveloped in someone's love and approval? What if I have to figure it out on my own? Oh, my God. I have become, I think, because of some of my own life experience and some of my own successes and failures, the friend slash therapist whose primary objective is to lead horses to said water. Yeah. (laughs) And the horse is Maggie Gyllenhaal in a saddle. It sure is. (laughs) And And to buy fresh hay to put on the desk as well. And Anna, what's your take on, especially by way of sort of the essays that you're referring to, by way of your exploration of your character in Good Girl, you know, what, what's your take on on what is going right in here? What is fantasy? Like, talk to us a bit about your take on Secretary overall. Yeah, actually, there's this really wonderful essay that I thought about um, while I was rewatching this movie. I, I have it written down here. It's Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny by R.S. Benedict. Yes, love that. And it's talking about... You, you see all these movies, all the all the Marvel Avengers big franchise where everyone is just so fit and hard and shiny and attractive and so sexless. And I think of how much this movie gets out of things that aren't quote unquote sex, as we know them, like the, the, the four P's scene where James Spader is telling her what she should eat for dinner and just that it's. He says she she she's on the phone with him, telling him what her her mom has made for dinner, and or I assume it's the mom. It could have been the dad. That's very gender essentialist. The, the food that is in the kitchen. Either Miss Scarlet or Elaine's therapist. We, we we missed a valuable scene there of dinner being prepared, but she's giving him a list of everything, and he says, "Okay, one scoop of cream potatoes, four peas, and as much ice cream as you'd like to eat." and you can see her just visibly react with pleasure to him giving her this instruction that is both showing the control he has over her, but also taking care of her and indulging her. And it's when I was watching this movie, it was representing a lot. So many of these, these scenes were representing things that had a, you know, stir, stir in a reaction in you that you didn't realize was there already. Mm-hmm. Like James Spader ordering you to eat four peas. You're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do want that. What, what, how, what do I, what do I search for in like the porn search bar to get that video? Oh man. Yeah. The search engines are not capable of really bringing us the right stuff yet, are they? As someone who went to high school when MySpace was a big thing and I liked movies by Wes Anderson, but there was this era of like kind of knockoff 
indie mumblecore whatever where the the guy she goes on a date with Peter the one she's supposed to get married to in this movie he just seemed like someone who would show up in like I'm trying to think of the names of other movies that I was watching that like thumb thumb sucker Yo, or, he's the character that Jake Johnson played in every movie before he got hot yeah like the movies that are coming to mind, and this isn't fair because I haven't seen any of them in a long time and the kid will be very good, but are Thumbsucker, yes. Igby Goes Down, yeah. yes. I Heart Huckabees. It's like she's being torn between two different independent movies. <laughs> yeah, and I felt like I was supposed to, in so many of these movies where, you know, these were the alternative quote-unquote love interests, and I was like, oh... And just what sex looks like for her in this movie is not what sex was not something that I was aware of what sex could be. And I was aware of BDSM or just S&M as I think, which seems to have such a different the phrase S&M compared to compared to BDSM. It, it gives me a more 70s leather vibe. But yeah, and I was aware of that. But it always came with this aesthetic Mm-hmm. this aesthetic which now as an adult I have a lot of respect for for the, the like leather daddy thing yeah the, the leather and the whips and chains and as someone who has spent a lot of time in both kink communities and queer communities you know and, and has more context now than when I was 19 for all the different rich histories there at the time I didn't realize what sadomasochistic relationship could look like and it shows up in the movie, after she gets fired by James Spader, she starts answering personals, want ads, and for other people seeking masochists. And she meets a series of men who are less attractive and whose kinks don't line up with her own. And that is probably a much more realistic depiction of seeking, of just dating, of just finding a partner who you are attracted to, who likes the same things you do, whether you're kinky or not. And she's like, I guess there's just this one thing. There's this one guy out there who gets me. And so while the story, which I can talk more about in a minute, is is a much more realistic and nuanced, I guess you can say nuanced, an internal story of, you know, this woman longing for a connection and the kind of the, the, the failure to achieve that and which is comes up in so many of the stories in the Bad Behavior Collection, which is like a devastating, wonderful collection. Um, it is nice to just watch a romantic movie about two kind-hearted perverts in love. <laughs> it's a fantasy because you don't get the scenes of them negotiating consent and that doesn't exist in this world. And it would be a problem if he was aiming for realism or aiming to be a manual, as he said. Right, like taking this as a manual is like taking like the Rocky Horror Picture Show as a manual and entertaining. Oh, well, that's what I do, so... <laughs> You're you're actually much closer to it than most people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't see Sarah right now, but she's in the full Frankenfurter getup uh, down to the makeup. She just she really came dressed to. Uh, I mean, once you put it on, you just like you just want to keep it on for a few days because it's just such a bitch to reassemble. But I mean, speaking of this as fantasy, I, I would love to talk about like the spectrum of fantasy, because again, with Fifty Shades of Grey like that, you know, that depicts essentially my understanding of it, and I've read the first book, and I saw the second movie, and everything else I packed together from various YouTubers. But essentially, it depicts a scenario where Christian Grey 
likes to cause physical pain and harm to women who look like his mother who died in front of him when he was a small child. And a little known fact is that is actually what all BDSM is. It is everyone, everyone will tell you that, you know, we're all just, yeah, broken perverts with mommy issues. Yeah, yeah, you're, you just are trying to kill your neglectful dead parent again and again. And that's the basis of a pleasurable sex life. And to me, like the dangerous thing about that story, from what I can tell, is that it's saying like, you know, your lifestyle, your kink, whatever, like, it's not actually good. It's like proof that you have a lot of shit to work through and you can't feel love. And like, you have to find someone who's never had sex with anyone else. And then if you spank her hard enough, you'll get better. And then you can have a baby. (laughs) And that doesn't not show up to some degree in secretary with the the (laughs) self-harm. And it does end with them getting married, which does not happen in the story. There's a line in there where she's like, from the outside, we were just like any other normal couple. And it's this idea that you can have this quote unquote alternative relationship and, and, and still fit it into this, this paradigm of monogamy and marriage and heterosexuality and, and just kind of, replicate the closest to the norm with this like, you know, little little twist on it, which is, again, a lot of a lot of kinky people are monogamous and married and is great for them. But it is very much about they ultimately don't threaten the status quo, which is fine for fantasy. Right. It's like kink as a way to protect marriage in a way. It's like totally the way that I've learned to reckon with secretary is it's a Disney movie. Mm hmm. It's their it's their better live action remake of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. <laughs> but so many Disney movies are based on really dark source material. They will take that source material, they will take some of the elements that are kind of fucked up, like the beast keeping Belle in this house and forbidding her from going in the West Wing, but then spoiling her with this library and or, you know, Prince Charming kissing Snow White while she's unconscious and they fall in love at first sight, or if not at first sight, they are matched with this person who ends up being perfect for them. They don't really have to discuss these things. The other person ends up well, being... You fall in love in a song. You're yeah. like, ah, there's something there that wasn't there before. And then David Ogden Steers sings about it as well. And then you're in love. Yeah. And there's still <laughs> enough of that fucked up... Can I swear yes. on this song? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> there, is, okay, there is still enough of this like kind of fucked up element beneath that I think people respond to in movies like Beauty and the Beast or I doubt this is in the original source material but that scene in Aladdin where Jasmine is trapped in the hourglass and and (laughs) and but it still is it has this happy ending of Hmm. marriage monogamy happily ever after it's still safe in so many ways and it's still palatable and digestible you know what's occurring to me because you're saying that is that Secretary really is like plotted in a very clear hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which makes it exactly like a Disney movie. She's Little Red Riding Hood when she shows up in her in her cloak in the rain to to Mr. Gray. There you go. And then it turns out the big bag wolf just wants to fuck you, which God knows we've always known. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny the parallel the parallel I see, and I think that your parallels are much more right on, but the parallel I see is that this is like the graduate if like the protagonist was likable. 
<laughs> in that they're like running away like she's literally running away from like a strictly vanilla existence like with this guy yeah. like he doesn't know he doesn't know how to spank he only sort of writhes around on top as his form of, of like penetrative sex like he's bad or he's not necessarily bad but he does not represent the sort of confined adventurousness, like proper amount of adventurousness that this movie is ready to put forward. And she has the runaway part and they end up together. And it's obviously like a more likable and enjoy, like they're not looking out the differing sides of the window on the bus sort of riding away, but they've, you know, they've kind of successfully escaped convention only kind of to end up in convention with spanking. Again, like Beauty and the Beast. I want adventure in the great <laughs> white somewhere. I want to marry some guy. Okay, whatever. This movie this movie needed an I want song. Oh yeah. I wish to go to the festival. Yes, I wish. Is it I wish or an I want? What is the It's an I want song, but the song in Into the Woods is I wish. I wish. I wish, yes. I'm not I'm nodding like I know musical conventions. So the I want song, there's a famous talk that Howard Ashman gave where he explained this because he kind of created the template for the Disney musical and mm-hmm. that's why they all are like Beauty and the Beast now, because he nailed it. Him and Alan Menken and how the I want song happens early on in the story and it's when the heroine goes to a shipwreck or leans on a trash can or whatever, <laughs> and she sings about what she wants, and you fall in love with her. Love it. What did the essay about how the adaptation fared or worked or did not work? What 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 has that revealed? Oh my gosh! So I have the book here. If you can hear my my pages rustling, that's what it is. But so Mary Gateskill talks a little bit about writing the story where she read, it was a small story in a Ms. magazine about a lawyer who is running for public office. I might be getting the details wrong, but it came to light that he had a relationship with his secretary. Uh, and she uses the word in writing about it, abuse. Like she calls it abuse in no, no uncertain terms multiple times in the essay. Mm-hmm. And she says it was so short and such a, such a blank slate of a character that she wondered what it was like to be the the young hopeful who ends up in this relationship mm-hmm. with her boss. And in this story, the main character, whose name is Debbie, the boss is not described as, as looking like James Spader, first of all. Not that not that it would make it okay. I would love it, though, if Mary Gateskill was like, he looked exactly like James Spader. <laughs> all right, moving yeah, on. Yeah, it was... <laughs> well, 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 she, well, she's just this character who's like plays everything tight and is clearly yearning for connection in this in this cruel and broken world of ours. And the first time her boss spanks her, she's very confused and very humiliated and very visibly upset, but she also still masturbates to it. And it is her trying to, a lot of it, trying to reconcile this source of, I want to say tension relief, but again, that sounds so therapy speak. But the, the fine that she, she, you know, feels herself coming alive in the, this office, but she does not have that relationship with her boss where he's solving everything. And I feel like my explanation is very simplistic and I'm like bastardizing the story. Like I just, my my biggest fear is Mary Gateskill re- finding my book and reading it and being like, well, that's not what I was trying to do at all. <laughs> Mary Gateskill has better things to do with her time. She's only going to read a book if she plans to enjoy it. <laughs> Does she ever? So, okay, yeah, I, I've I've got all my highlighted passages here. I'm going to pull a, a Sarah Marshall book club where yeah. you read a section and say, what do you think of that? <laughs> Love it. 
<laughs> so talking about the book, she says the deeper subject of secretary then is the tension between the force and complexity inside the heroine and how it gets squeezed through the tiny conduit of her personality that she has learned to make small so that she may live in the small and mute world around her. And then, which is, you know, a good summation. And then on the next page, she's describing Maggie Gyllenhaal as, as Lee. And she's complimentary to the movie in many ways, but she recognizes that it is doing something totally different than the story. So she says, She is puppy-eyed and slump-shouldered, but this melancholy affect is oddly superficial. It is quickly neutralized by Lee's big glowing smiles, which unmistakably signal the assurance and ease of a happy and lovably ditzy person. When the boss says to her, you're closed up tight, it doesn't make sense because we're looking at a soft, receptive, essentially sunny face. When first spanked, she does show bewilderment and consternation, but her ambivalence is temporary and never reaches the level of conflict that might be uncomfortable to watch. Lee never seems humiliated. This truly painful feeling is present only symbolically, as if the screenwriter used anorexia and cutting to represent emotions she did not understand and was incapable of rendering. And in the in the margins I've written, yeah, because it's just easier to kind of ape ape her opinions. And <laughs> she goes on to say that the that kind of the character that she represented in as Debbie in the book kind of comes through with how James Spader plays plays hmm. Mr. Gray as as more tight and and close to the chest and conflicted by what's happening on screen. It's so interesting because particularly that criticism, which I think is an extremely fair criticism based on how Gyllenhaal portrays this character. But so I had issues with self-harm in my teens that I converted into issues with drugs (laughs) because, you know, it's like at the end of the day, at least the correlation for me was it was related to control or feelings of lack of control. And once I got out of my 20s and started reconciling some of my issues with drugs and alcohol, I started to realize that like I presented like very much as an extrovert, but like I really realized that I was sort of like riddled with anxiety and was like putting on a show of being outward when in fact I was just a fucking tight ball of anxiety all the time that I was trying to cover up with these things. And I found that you know, I didn't find like her bubbliness like a suggestion of not being tight because in fact like when Mm -hmm. you are that tight or when you have issues with control often what you're trying to do a lot of the time is to fake as if you are not or your reflex is to put on a mask that suggests that you're not i don't know that this movie was going for that and i don't Mm -hmm. i'm not suggesting it was but it's something that really resonates with my experience what i thought of when i heard that passage was like yeah she looks loose she looks loose for a lot of that movie. You're watching her. If she was on the ball field, you'd be like, she's going to play a good game. <laughs> I, uh, she's sprung. To be clear, I love her in this movie. And there are a lot of choices in her acting, but also in her styling and the set decoration, the kind of the girlish decor, all the purple mm-hmm. that she wears, just the very little girl demeanor that she brings to the role that Everything I, I want to say sounds like such a cliche, but I want to say like troubled innocence, which uh, again, a very kind of Disney heroine affect in many ways. Mm-hmm. But also she she does bring this this very visible pain to the role when she... Well, her harm box is a kid's pencil box. I didn't notice that. I guess that had butterflies on it. The scene when she's masturbating and she's got the, the red Sharpie set on her little little pedestal and tries to spank herself with the hairbrush and... and in my in my mind, her hairbrush is purple and sparkly. I don't think it actually is, but just everything in her world is just 
this idea of her trying to be safe and seeking something in her belongings and surroundings that she finds in James Bader. And in the in the story, she has a ceramic weather poodle that is supposed to, which sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that was a thing that was either big in the 80s or big in the, the Midwest or... I feel like you would like get that in exchange for a bunch of green stamps or something. <laughs> I've never seen one IRL, but it's supposed to change color depending on the weather, pink, purple, green, and it just is always a gray in the book. Oh, wow. And I feel like the movie kind of jumped on this detail and played with it, which is, again, very different from what she's doing in the story, but I don't hate it. And I understand, Alex, your your point about the kind of loose image she, she presents to the, this affable. The line that I probably misremember from this story, which I read like seven years ago during a gate skill phase, my only gate skill phase, so they can come at any time. Was it, it was a description of like the boss who she was having sex with, like reminding her of like a mole or something. Is that in there? I, I believe I think she says he's got eyes like a mole. The idea that like the feeling of sex with him was like he was like digging somehow like past turn into something else. Hmm. I like that. There were two more short passages I wanted to to share. If I can read aloud to the class. Yeah. We rarely get anyone to talk about external writing about our, the texts that we're dealing with. So this is actually a nice treat. So she has uh, a line there. As the film progresses, Lee begins to seem like a fantasy Madonna in her unconditional approval and affirmation of her conflicted lover. When the boss has a crisis about what they're doing and fires Lee, any unpleasant feelings of hurt and anger on her part are quickly transcended. She's all the more accepting and approving, declaring that she wants to get to know him before she glues herself to his desk and starves herself for three days. Again, I think not to make any excuses for any characters, the fact that he is James Spader does probably encourage a certain a certain reaction. But yes, very little conflict in them getting to know each other. Just it seems the conflict is, can we, you know, do this 24-7 and gain approval from the rest of the world? It's like, no, you can do it like eight hours a day at most because you have to like sleep and do laundry and yeah, so on. Yeah, got to do your job. You have to go to the hay store. I feel like the conflict, like it just is so kind of classically like the romantic story that we've all, you know, that girls at least grow up hearing a million times of like the conflict is he's like, I can't love you. And he's like, no, all right. OK, I will. <laughs> Yeah. And to have kind of a conventional framework for this slightly different view of sexuality. Again, I say alternative, but every time I say alternative, please know that I'm doing it like air quotes. (laughs) And that's fine. Like, I love a romantic comedy. This one isn't so much comedy as, as just straight romantic movie. But like, yeah, it's it's nice to do that with sex scenes that are different than what you might see in I don't know. What's another romantic movie? Notting Hill. <laughs> Notting Hill. Sure. Yes, the two the two cultural touchstones. And then the last part that I really want to quickly read is, uh, this is my favorite part of the essay, where she talks about she went to see a screening of Secretary at the director's house with uh, several of his friends. During the opening scenes, while Lee elegantly maneuvered in an elaborate bondage costume, a woman loudly burst out, She's not some helpless little victim. She's in control and she's doing just fine. (laughs) 
It's very expository. Yeah. She spoke <laughs> as if through clenched teeth, and considering that no one had suggested that Lee was a victim, her vehemence was startling. So this vehemence, which may be the real driving motor of the film, revolves around what has become a contentious cultural belief that Americans want to be victims and that such victimhood must be denounced or denied, hmm. which is, I think, Mary with the claws out. And she's written some other essays about this, which are, I, I, I feel like I wouldn't have time to dig into all of it because part of it is just, I do think I am very comfortable saying that she is a lot smarter than me. Just a, a razor sharp writer, but I love the idea of someone watching this scene and immediately on the defensive framing it as like, this is an empowering choice for her as if that was an issue that needed to come up. And I think that with a lot of discussions about BDSM or sex or Mary Gateskill has so many stories about sex work and she talks about when the director came to her, he was like, I don't want to make another pretty woman that like devalues the 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 very serious subject matter. This idea of it needing to be empowering. Right. You don't hear about narratives where male characters need to be empowered very much, do you? Yeah. Maybe she just likes to be spanked. No, she can't like to be spanked. It has to be in service of being a better person with fewer mental health needs. Yeah. Right. And it'll cure you. Yeah, that's the spanking here. <laughs> yeah. It's like being bled. <laughs> what did you guys think of the scene where she's with her sister, Amy Locane, and, and her friends, and they're sitting by the pool and talking about, you know, sexual harassment? I thought that was so interesting. And my theory is that they wrote that in so that the audience won't be distracted by wondering if Lee has heard of sexual harassment. And I feel like they wrote that saying, <laughs> be like, yeah, no, she's heard of it. It's fine. Yeah. I don't know in what service it was intended, but, you know, from, I'd say, what, the movie Disclosure through the Clinton presidency through the early 2000s, I, I feel mm -hmm. like I recall a decade straight of news conversations about acknowledging what sexual harassment was. Mm -hmm. And I imagine this movie coming out during the time of that, again, like decade long cultural conversation and obviously an incomplete conversation because we keep revisiting it in bigger ways and revising it along the way. I imagine this movie was kind of like, well, I think if we, don't acknowledge that that is a thing that we know exists in the mm -hmm. world. We are going to hear the criticism that I still see people making, which is like, this was not a consensual relationship. This is a unbalanced power dynamic. This is an ethically questionable way to go about this. Alex, I know you wanted to talk about Try Guys discourse. I'm not going to let you off that hook. I want to talk about Try Guys every week now, every week. <laughs> so there was that issue in particular that Sarah just articulated in jest, but also in reality. And the secondary piece was when I was like, are we sure we're not just purity culturing cheating? <laughs> Some people very right on and correctly brought up the fact that like, well, there is an element here of like power differentials in consent because mm -hmm. the relationship that this person had was with an employee. Mm -hmm. And so that is the parallel <laughs> to secretary. <laughs> Though I don't think that their sex or I have no idea what their sex was like, but I don't think it was as hot as what James Spader was doling out in this movie. Alex, we don't know. We don't know. We were there. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm sure there's a ton going on here. I haven't 
done my research, but I suspect that this is like a feeling of parasocial betrayal. Yes. That is being like articulated as if there are like more complicated morals at stake than there are. Well, I think and you you've seen something similar, I think, with you're wrong about and the way people respond to you're wrong about the way people whatever the way people don't want me to cheat on my wife yes well well <laughs> i think that it relates to and i had a long conversation with someone today talking about sort of like what the, the various podcasts in this arena have meant to them mm-hmm. especially during the pandemic mm-hmm. these shows both podcasts and video were in a lot of ways our parents putting on a little Mm. life is beautiful show to not let us know what was going on outside. And then fucking Deidre Chambers. What a coincidence. And then obviously I think the thing that people become uncomfortable about is reconciling the fact that part of capitalizing upon having an audience is maintaining some sort of brand that has some matches with your actual reality and has some divergence with that reality. Mm -hmm. And they feel cheated when someone says I'm one thing but the reality is not actually that because what they're actually reconciling is not what that person did or didn't do they feel let down because their parent who helped them through the pandemic or whatever wasn't representative of what they said they were but also they're just realizing something very disappointing and elementary about capitalism period and about what people are like i have heard the phrase loving his wife was part of his personal brand used in earnest so many times. <laughs> oh no. Just don't make your wife part of your personal brand. That's my idea. Let her have her own life. We said this in the group chat, Sarah, with Jamie is like, I, and, and Carolyn is like, I even get weird when people are like, you and Carolyn are goals. And I'm like, we're not trying to be like, please don't like, I love, I certainly love my wife. I love our relationship. Mm -hmm. It's great. But like, I'm not here to be your model for shit. I'm here to like, talk about feelings and talk about movies and get a little critical Mm -hmm. and like remind you to have like empathy and like do that stuff. But I'm certainly not here to be a goal because inevitably that will be disappointing for you at some point. And then it's going to suck for all of us. (laughs) And, And also, and like to clarify, you know, it's like if someone you care about who does, you know, content that you enjoy or whatever, if you find out that they're engaging in abusive relationship dynamics or something like that, like, yes, it matters. It matters what they do. But if we're talking about people being disappointing in their personal lives and taking that as a moral failing like that to me is where it gets weird. I think the important difference in this could be, a. Re- I'm just so, I'm really, I'm saying a lot of this stuff in jest. I don't know this brand very well. I don't know Try Guys very well. I'm Anything I'm saying is about the discourse that happened over the past couple of weeks. But I think the difference where people feel let down is where the purported brand doesn't match the behavior rather mm-hmm. than... I think kind of like what what we're doing, what I feel really good about what we're doing is like, I'm trying to do work on myself all the time to try to be better than I was. And I'm being vulnerable about that. And I never have thought or sort of like presented myself as like a goal for anyone in any sort of way. And that's a projection of the audience when that does happen rather than just being like, hey, we're all fucked up. Let's work on it. Right. Like, I like to think that (laughs) that my audience is just watching traffic right now. I like to think that my audience would not be like scandalized or felt that it was going against my personal brand if I cheated on someone. Like I would like to think they'd be like, 
Yeah, Sarah's impulsive and has terrible <laughs> self-esteem. That makes sense based on what I know of her. <laughs> I would love to not have a personal brand or think about a personal brand or think about other people's personal brands. And I'm not going to say that I don't as someone who has been on Twitter for 14 years and has had public facing work that has appeared in, you know, mm-hmm. major outlets. But yeah, no, I have my thoughts, pretty much all of my thoughts for the last 14 years recorded in some way or another <laughs> online, which is terrifying. I don't know what I said when I was 22, but yeah, I feel like I am a fuck up just in the ways that I am, you know, a human being on this planet. And people who are in more visible positions with less of a boundary between their audience and them. So like content creators, YouTube personalities, podcast hosts, it is intense. That being said, I will add that Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs are my parents. And when Michael <laughs> left the show, my parents got divorced and it took that as a personal betrayal. Yeah, it was. <laughs> no. And then you had to go spend the summer at grandma's. So Oh my gosh. And now I'm now I'm here with Uncle Alex. Yeah. You know, or, or grandma Alex, whatever, whichever metaphor we're going with. That's so funny. Yeah, I'm, I am. I'm glad. I even though this came up almost in jest, like I'm glad that this came up because, yeah, I do think like talking about like the difference between what you are presenting intentionally, what you're presenting nefariously, and then what people decide to read into and need you to be, and how much of a trap that can become, even though yeah. you're not setting out to do or be that thing, is a is the eternal conversation of our moment until the internet collapses in on itself, which it feels pretty close to doing. So I'm glad we're doing it now. Yeah. I feel like this, I'm going to try, I'm going to draw a big circle and connect this back to kind of the kind con- <laughs> Please do. If anyone can do it, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> back to kind of, you know, this conversation we've been having the whole time about like, is it problematic? Well, it's problematic if it's a guidebook, but if you treat it as fantasy, what is it then? And I feel like this all connects to the question that I feel like we're asking a lot more now that there's kind of the implicit belief that everyone is living their life in public. This feeling that like everyone is a role model mm-hmm. or that like everything is instructions or should serve as instructions, which is really how Twitter functions and what drove me up the wall about it to the point that I just could no longer continue without being insufferable was how you would state an opinion and then people would be like, what about my opinion? And it's like, okay. (laughs) And so how secretary can function as a story about sort of a fantasy about what love can do and can be, but also about something that, you know, I would say is not being argued as something that should be aspired to. I feel like it's, it's being shown as something that like, worked for this person for some reason. And I feel like we've gotten farther away culturally from being able to consume stories as worked for this person for some reason. (laughs) Totally, that's so well said. Chad, on your point, what what love can be and can do, but also what sex can be and can do. I think so many movies are so sexless and it's great that, yeah, it worked out for them, but like the hottest scenes in this movie were the four Ps and well, also, also the spanking and the sex yeah. and the tying, you know, all the, all the other stuff too. But like, just different, different way, different ways that movies can be erotic, which is 
Got to give credit to James Spader's career for this one. I saw a screening of Crash, mm-hmm. the good one, not the the Cronenberg one. Um, the uh, the J.G. Ballard Crash. <laughs> yeah, which I I had seen before, but this time I saw a screening at the TIFF Lightbox in Toronto, and I I've never seen it in a room full of strangers, <laughs> which is a different experience. I I will summarize Crash using the summary a character on Peep Show gave. You know, that movie about people who feel sexy when they think about road traffic accidents. <laughs> <laughs> also, I like to think, I know that this is just headcanon, but I like to think that James Spader's Robert California from The Office is this character in Witness Protection. I like to think that he is his character from Pretty in Pink. That's perfect. Yes. That's perfect. I mean, you know, every one of the characters has the exact amount of transferable smarm in a way that I really appreciate. The thing that I'm surprised that has not come up yet and for people who are listening to this show relatively new or new to the show our origin is we used to be a show called why are dads Mm -hmm. and we would examine sort of relationships with dads in movies as a means of sarah and i figuring out why exactly we're fucked up Mm -hmm. and then we finished in nine months and now we're just talking (laughs) about movies we're fine now this movie has a dynamic relationship dad father daughter relationship Mm -hmm. so in the movie her father is an alcoholic he struggles with that alcoholism and part of that struggle is he is also abusive and i don't know what preceded what or what enables what because we only get a little window into him we don't learn his backstory necessarily he has a long struggle he's in and out of sort of like treatment and he presumably having maybe is in recovery when we see him towards the end and he gives the only comforting words and i don't know if they are actual or ironic or a little bit of both to his daughter in the middle of her hunger strike and i'm curious to know in the source text or in the essay of the commentary about like how the movie turned out do we get any commentary on the Mm. father or do we have takes on on the father so in the book, she she does have a sister and lives with her parents. And I do think that there is reference to, there might be reference to her father drinking or, or, or arguing, but it's not a major part of the book. And there is no real relationship in the story the way that it unfolds in the movie, where it becomes a thing that they, they do 24-7. So her parents are, you know, completely oblivious throughout. There is one interesting scene where... She talks about, and, and, and Mary Gatesville also brings this up. She talks about how Debbie has this memory of going to the pet store with her sister and everything that Debbie describes is just so bleak and sterile and sad. And she talks about this visit to the sad pet store that smells like wet fur. And she goes outside and it's raining and her sister gives her her coat. And when she does it, she kind of like rests her hand on her arm for an extra second. She remembers like her sister's never touched her like that Hmm. before or since like that was the most physical contact they've had so it seems that the way the family is presented in the book it is my read of it is it's it's very cold and whatever is there and I cannot remember the specifics of, of her dad's alcoholism but it is just not that kind of presence in the book and she doesn't there is no scene where she needs their approval or, or disapproval. It just ends. Hmm. Is it fair to call it a dadless universe in the story? 
<laughs> I mean, the dad is there, but yes, she is in search of a daddy. So aren't we all? I think like the interesting, like potentially difficult to read or like the potentially sloppy read on what's going on with the dad in this case is like dad beats mom. She's looking for someone to spank her like easily transferable. And like, I, I more see, and this is something that we've talked about on and on throughout the show is like in codependent family formations, control and lack of control are such a huge response of those who have come up with someone who is like first and foremost, like abusive. And then like some of that maybe has some substance abuse disorder revolving around that. And I can totally see that not necessarily like the one for one, you know, dad hits, I'm looking for someone to hit, but they'll like, I'm feeling out of control and I'm feeling extremely tightly wound and I want to feel someplace where I feel cozy. I see that much Mm -hmm. more in what's going on in that relationship. And I kind of appreciate how they handled it without over explaining it although that's all stuff that clearly i'm projecting onto the movie (laughs) well and i also feel like reductive sexual explanations are like they just kind of don't do anything you know it's like yes like you know my dad ignored me and i have spent my adult life and my adolescent life i guess also wanting to fuck old men and Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) i recognize the connection does it change anything no. So whatever. <laughs> it's like this is verbatim what Kevin said in our um, uh, Blue Velvet episode. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, because that was about mommy. <laughs> yes. So do we want to say anything in a wrapping way before we ask the question that is a holdover from our show, Why Our Dads? There's a book I wanted to shout out. I haven't read it in a few years and I'm bad at remembering. Like I reread Secretary last week and I couldn't remember how the dad is represented in that story. So I might butcher it. But Gillian Keenan, the journalist, has a memoir called Sex with Shakespeare. Mm. And it's about reading about sexuality in, in Shakespeare's plays, but it really is a memoir of her spanking fetish nice. oh, and her trying to find it in different art, predominantly Shakespeare in this book. But she does talk about seeing Secretary. It is also one of the funniest books I've read. And I love where, where is can you just identify like one case of spanking in Shakespeare? Because I do. I am going to read this. I just really want to know right now. I don't actually know if there's explicit spanking scenes but she does talk about different dynamics that play and how she's how she interprets them well we've lost the stage directions so we can't know (laughs) yes yes so she does i i love her read of taming of the shrew Mm. where she does read it as kind of a consenting bdsm relationship and she she not all her interpretations i agree with but she does make a very good case does that make 10 things i hate about you about a consenting bdsm relationship i hope so it could be. Yeah, I, I feel like the, it's a short walk. <laughs> I can't remember her exact takeaway. Like, I think she was like, yeah, cool, hot movie. But this idea of like that one to one link of, mm. you know, having to have some, again, in air quotes, damage to explain a kink. Right. And I do think I do like Lee as a character in this movie. I do think it's believable that she does is a masochist and it comes through in different ways. And before she finds this relationship, she is experimenting with other types of harm. But I also, you know, appreciated Jillian Keenan's frustration of just trying to find a narrative yeah. of kink that didn't have to have this origin story. And I, I and part of it is is just that there are so few 
BDSM depictions. I mean, there's a lot of kinky movies out there and there's a lot of sexually charged movies, but one that just shows this dynamic as part of a relationship between two loving people that it's not going to be everything to everyone and it can't be and that it is held up as the example and the go-to kink movie. Yeah, not not everyone who gets spanked has an abusive dad at home. But in this this one particular story that is being told, that is how it happens. And yeah. And also, like, you know, looking at the statistics, like, honestly, I don't think that there are that many dads who are totally non-abusive. So, like, there's no way of knowing what relationship there is. Like, we just the sample sizes are too small. So fair. It's also interesting seeing reception to my book, a thing that I I guess I sort of expected, but still catches me off guard when I hear criticisms that are like from people who wish that I delved into why my character is kinky. Like, where did it originate from? Like, I don't know. Why do you want to have sex, you know, the way you do? What's that about? (laughs) Why are some people into feet? Did they have it? Oh, yeah. Quentin Tarantino was walked all over. The Monty Python foot actually squished him as a child. So, yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like this connects to the idea that, you know, to me is very visible in pop culture, kind of as I was growing up and looking at what immediately preceded that time. And, you know, that I can hopefully imagine is maybe waning, but I don't have real faith in that. But just the idea that like every form of sexuality you can have as a woman is incorrect. Like there's no correct sexuality to have. Like you just will fuck it up. And like this idea of pathologizing kink as if it's a problem to be solved feels like it dovetails very nicely with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we know that there is a father working through some issues with his impulses and his compulsions and his uh, his drinking mm-hmm. in this movie but who in your view is the daddy when i was rewatching this movie and anticipating this question i kept thinking i can't pick james spader because that's too obvious that's that's like saying The Godfather is your favorite movie, which I guess if you're, if you're Sarah, you do. But like, but I'm like, it's gotta like he's just the daddy in every movie mm-hmm. he's in. He's the daddy in Pretty in Pink. He's the daddy in Crash. You just know that he would come harder than anyone else in the world, yeah. right? He's just got that quality. <laughs> he's the daddy in The Office after, especially after Michael Scott leaves. He's a he's a he's a, he's the perfect dad to take over. He's the, the Walter White daddy champion. Yeah, you can't pretend otherwise. I am going to say I had completely forgotten about the scene. It's here and gone like a summer's day in like four seconds. I loved it so much. When she's trying to find new partners, she talks about having a date with this guy who wanted to be tied to a gas range on full yes. blast and have tomatoes thrown at him. So yes. she's like gamely doing this like she's not, you know, she doesn't seem to be getting very much out of it, but she's doing it. She's checking the tomatoes and he's just like, thank you. And I just like, I love that guy. He has very wholesome energy. I feel like he found out the extremely specific thing he wants. And now, you know, that that's, he's, that's great. That's great progress. Me too. He will. I really hope he finds someone. He will. There's probably someone who likes having gallons of ketchup poured on them on stage that would match with, he'd match with wonderfully. Those kinds of people are really hard to find. 
<laughs> yeah. I am going to pick Maggie Gyllenhaal. I don't know why outside of the fact that like when she, when that Ferrante adaptation came out that she was just in i forget i forget what yeah. what that was lost daughter yeah when lost daughter came out i feel like people were like very positively reassessing her or like not even reassessing but just like assessing properly i don't know why why did we ever assess her low no just not not even i think like everyone is always thrilled when maggie gyllenhaal is in a movie doing anything <laughs> i just wish we got as much of her as we got Jake. <laughs> I have no idea what the Gyllenhaal's lives are like. This is, I'm taking a random flyer here, but this could be a great example of like what happens to, you know, the career of a mother versus a father. Hmm. I don't know what happened. I don't know sort of like what occurred career wise, but like, and maybe she was just like, I don't want to be in as many things or as have as big a career as, as uh, Jake did. But it does feel a little bit like, you know, mom was allowed to have one career while dad was out just courting Taylor Swift. I, uh, I also just want to say I love her face. Mm -hmm. oh, I love, gosh. I love both the faces in this movie. Great, great to watch. She yeah. was so great in, in, not not a not an excellent show, but a, a competent show that didn't get a lot of love when it was out was the Deuce. In oh, part yeah. because you had what's his face fucking playing James two of Franco. himself. James Franco. Yeah, two James Francos, unfortunately. We're doing an episode on the Dead Zone, and I was like, I'll listen to the audiobook. Who's it read by? James Franco. So disappointing. But she was tremendous in that. I love her a lot. Anna, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it was. It was lovely. I literally cannot think of another word. Well, you are lovely. Thank you for being here. You're so lovely. And thank you for being lovely on our show. It's early in the morning, break of day.
try so hard, I pull on my soul Sometimes I try so hard, it ruins my day Sometimes I try so hard to be special That I get in my own way Oh, and when this life is through with me and you When this life is through with me and you When this life is through with me But it's early in the morning, break of day Early in the morning, break of day Early in the morning, break of day And I wonder what's gonna come my way Yeah, I wonder what's gonna come Oh, I love that song. That's Break of Day by Carolyn Kendrick. Again, you can find it on her Bandcamp. We will link that in the show notes and you can stream, etc. But you know, if you buy stuff from musicians on Bandcamp, it gets them that money that the streaming services certainly do not. Just putting that in your ear. That doesn't only apply right now. That applies to all of the musicians you know and love. Thank you so much to Chase Potter for editing. Thank you to Carolyn for producing the episode and editing as well. Don't forget to sign up on Patreon or Apple subscriptions for bonus episodes. Again, this month will be home for the holidays and a lot of our ideas about Thanksgiving and why it makes families the way that it does. Next week, we'll be talking about Working Girl with Lane Moore. So excited for that. Thank you to Fresh Lash for providing the beats that make the transitions on the show sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lash. Thanks for everything you do. Thank you for listening, everybody. You, my friend, you are good. All right. More from us soon. Take care. <laughs>